Hello, and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. And I'm really excited, or we, I should say, are very excited to have a special guest with us this evening. And that is Karen McBride, who is the author of Crow Winter. And in it was funny because I believe somebody on Bookstagram mentioned the book and I looked at the synopsis of the story and I thought, oh my gosh, this is just right up my alley. This is going to be a book I'm going to love. And I finished it actually a few days ago, reached out to Karen and she agreed to chat with us today. So we would like to welcome Karen McBride to our program. Hi, well, thanks so much for having me. That's so amazing that you were able to find the book over the whole Bookstagram community because it is such a... Uh, a beautiful representation of what community is, I think, in that everyone is just interacting all the time and giving recommendations. And I just love it. So it's nice to see that, hey, look, it's actually working. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it was funny, too, because since I have now put that up on our Instagram, I've had other people reach out to me and say something about the book, whether they're, it's either on their to be read list or they've already read it and loved it. So it's definitely a book that people are talking about. So Karen, how have you been handling this time with the pandemic? I think it's been interesting. I feel like everybody has their their ups and downs with it. I've been lucky enough to be able to work from home. So I do still have some sense of normalcy in my life. My commute to work has gotten a lot shorter. So that's great. <laughs> but, you know, I try to stay creative in any way that I can because the writing is is not coming as quickly as I would like it to. So, you know, I been doing some drawing on the side and when that all all that fails I just uh been playing a lot of video games and watching a lot of tv so that's been fun <laughs> <laughs> any any series any shows you want to give a shout out to at all oh oh gosh I watched a lot of trashy Netflix stuff I don't think I should mention it <laughs> yeah I think I think we all do that actually <laughs> right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> We actually have a few questions for you this evening, and the first one we'd like to start with, for those who may not be aware of your book, could you just start with giving us a brief description of Crow Winter? For sure. Crow Winter is the story of a young Algonquin Anishinaabe woman named Hazel, who returns to her home reserve following the death of her father. She's there to reconcile her grief, but also to deal with land claims issue that her father left for her and her family. There's an old quarry that's on their property and it's been sitting unused for over a century and is only now starting to gain interest from outside parties. So all of that's going on. But at the same time, she starts having dreams about this talking crow who turns out to be the trickster, trickster god, we could say, uh, named Nanabush. He warns her that there's more at stake with the quarry than just a centuries old land claim and that she and her family could be in danger in this world and the next. So it's a bit of a mystery. It's got magic and ultimately is one family's journey through grief. Thank you. That's a that's a great description of it. And it's funny because I'm not somebody who necessarily likes magic realism, but I love crows and ravens in stories. And so that's why I say as soon as I saw that, it grabbed me immediately and I was really excited to read it. Amazing. Yeah. In other interviews I've listened to, uh, you stated that you began with the title in mind. And can you talk about the meaning of Crow Winter and its significance in the telling of your story? Mm -hmm. Well, the title itself was given to me by my mom because I knew I wanted to write a story about, about birds and, and of course, grief, because that was my way of getting my own feelings onto the page. 
and I've always loved crows and ravens in, in a similar way that you have. And she was like, hey, we actually have this saying uh, at home. It's sort of like a local legend called a crow winter. Since then, I've heard two different versions of what it could mean. One is that it's when the crows all, all start coming back after winter and it's sort of like, oh, look, spring is coming, which doesn't exactly align with the book. So I was like, mm, I'm going to ignore that one. And the first version she gave me was that a crow winter happens when it snows too soon for it to actually be winter. So it gives this sort of omen of what happens with the too soon frost, what sort of things might unravel or, you know, die as a result. And did you think at all, I know that sometimes I think crows are supposed to also signify de death in that way as well. Were you thinking of did that kind of play a part? I mean, because of the father and the, the story has passed away, and I know your own father had passed away. So did it have did that have some meaning as well? Oh yeah, definitely. It's got such a, a it's a, such a well known image, and people do automatically think of death. I mean, a whole group of them is called the murder, so they can't even escape that on their own. But there's so much more to them than uh, that ominous sort of feeling because they're they're incredibly smart they have communities and they tell each other stories and they they pass on the knowledge that they've gathered as families uh through generations and i think that's so telling of what happens in the story with hazel and her family and also just overall like anishinaabe legends and how that works so i think there's a lot of symbolism that goes with the crow that people might not be aware of just from face value sure I'm going to read uh, the opening poem in your book because it's just so beautiful. I loved it. And it's by Chief Dan George uh, from the book, a collection called My Heart Soars. It's very short and I'll read it and then I want to get your take on it. If you talk to animals, they will talk with you and you will know each other. If you do not talk to them, you will not know them. And what you do not know, you will fear. What one fears, one destroys. And I wondered, how did you come to pick that poem? Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I just, I love hearing it too. And like reading it is beautiful too, because of the way he sort of separated all of the lines in such a unique way. Um, it makes you stop and pause. Uh, and you read that beautifully. So thank you for doing that. I was studying my master's in arts uh, in the field of English at the University of Toronto when I came across this poem. And at the time, I was really surrounded by all kinds of literature and discourse that had me thinking about sort of like the imbalance of own stories in Canadian literature. And I was a little bit frustrated that we don't talk enough about the Indigenous stories that have been around forever. And Chief Dan George was one of those people who had been writing forever and then was also an actor and all of these amazing things. So I wanted to really cement the book in that canon. So right when you get into it, you get that that poem. But also, it, the message is really fitting. It resonates with the journey that Hazel and Anna Bush embark upon together, because ultimately it's about trust and the, and the teachings you've been given. That like if you, you speak with them, then you will know them. But if you don't listen and you ignore that tradition, bad things can come of it and fear can completely unravel everything that you've built. Yeah. And the relationship between Hazel and Nana Bush, I just, I think it's one of those relationships, characters and stories that you just never forget. In fact, we were talking with another friend, another reader, and we were talking about characters that have resonated with us and have stayed with us our whole lives. And I have to be honest with you, the relationship between Hazel and Nana Bush, for me, I'm definitely, they're 
going to stay in my memory. And I have a bad memory, but they're going to stay <laughs> in my memory for a long time because they just were so, their relationship was just so beautiful to me. I loved it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Sure. As soon as you sort of start to look at the book, you see these beautiful illustrations of of crows and, and other natural elements. And I wanted to know, I noticed on the back, it says that you did the cover illustration, but did you do all the illustrations for the book? Yes, I did. All of them are mine. Wow. Now, why is it not credited? Because I didn't see that it said you were responsible for all the illustrations. I didn't think. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to somebody over at Harper. <laughs> you should. Usually it's, uh, it's credited, but I didn't see that only on the back. Oh, I think it might be at the front, like the publishing notes just at the front. Uh, yeah, there's like a text oh, and illustration copyright, so it's not explicit. You have to go hunt down for it, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't follow rules very well. And I totally missed the very top where it says text and illustration. So can you talk a little bit about your art? Because I didn't realize you also are an artist uh, along with being an, an author. So have you, what started first? Have you been an illustrator longer than or an artist, longer than a writer? What, what's the genesis of all of those, those two activities, I guess? Well, I've been drawing forever. My dad was was an artist as well, so it's sort of just in my blood. My one of my aunts, my aunt Hazel, actually, who is Hazel's namesake, she was an artist. So it was really important to me to have that aspect in the book and sort of honor her in another way, and then honor my dad in that way. But really, I've just been drawing, I think, for as long as I can remember. And then writing sort of showed up after I started reading Harry Potter and was like, hey, I want to make my own world like that. I want to go to Hogwarts. I'm going to write my own fan fiction and stick myself in there because that was the only way I was going to get to Hogwarts. So I so yeah, I think the art came first, but it really did just lead to to more artistic pursuits. Wow. So was it difficult for them to allow you to include the, your own illustrations in the book or was that something that was... I mean, how did that, I didn't, I don't know that that normally happens. So how did that happen? I've been told it doesn't really happen that way. Not everybody is so lucky. Um, my agent, when we went into our meeting with, with Harper Collins, she mentioned that, oh, hey, Karen has these drawings. Why don't you take a look at them? And I, I, you know, brought my sketchbook just in case and just thought, oh, maybe I'll put one like somewhere in the book. I didn't really expect too much, but they loved it. My editor, Iris, was instantly drawn to them she thought they were beautiful and then she brought the like art director from harper collins in and he really liked them and they thought hey well can you actually do more because i didn't i think i had five or so of them at that point and they suggested why don't we put one at the head of every chapter so they actually asked me to draw more so uh, i was blown away and obviously it was like yes please <laughs> of course <laughs> And it really enhances the story. I, I mean, I kind of look forward every, at the beginning of every chapter to see what was the next illustration. So I, I that really, for me, I'm a visual person as well. And I, and it really uh, enhanced the chapters. I, I love them all. It, it was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Now, now we're going to get into like a little bit more of a serious question here. But at one point, Nana Bush is watching Nora, which is Hazel's mother in the kitchen. And he says, broken people build broken homes. So I want to know, are Hazel and her family broken people? And is this a broken home? Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps not broken in the way that we immediately think when you hear that phrase, but 
when we meet Hazel and Nora and her brother Gus, they aren't really a family unit anymore. They've they've really been torn apart by this loss. So they're broken in a an emotional way, also a spiritual way. They're not really connected to their tradition. I think Nora at one point mentions that she doesn't really go to ceremonies anymore. She goes to the big things like powwows, but she doesn't know how to bring herself to participate in tradition anymore. And Hazel, she's sort of in transit. She just finished this huge accomplishment in her life of getting her university degree, but she is sort of lost. So she's broken in that way. Gus, he's avoiding going home. So he's avoiding confronting his grief. So really, they're all broken in a different way. They're broken because loss is, is something that, that shatters you. When I read that quote in the book, it's funny because it just, it really just jumped out at me and it actually made me just sort of stop and kind of go back. Oh, I kind of reread that section it led up to because it was just, it was like the perfectly placed statement in the book because it just really kind of, it's a little bit of a gut punch, you know, but it was just an amazing moment in the story. So I just loved that. Oh, that was fantastic. So I rave about your book because I read a lot and Sometimes something will come along that just really hits you in the right moment, the right time. And your book really did that for me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it really resonated. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Family secrets are definitely a theme in the book. And Hazel accuses her mother of keeping secrets. Then Nora points out that Hazel's father kept secrets. Nanabush has his own. And can you talk about the repercussions of family secrets within the story? They sort of snowball, I think. It all really does lead back to Hazel's father, Abe, keeping that secret about the quarry and not really talking about what he wanted to do with it. So that sort of it puts that wrench into their plans right away. Nora is keeping what she knows about Abe keeping that secret to herself and not telling Hazel. And then Hazel is also, I think she's keeping her secrets as well because she's not telling people that she's hanging out with Nana Bush. Of course, there's the problem that like people might think she's she's not in her right mind because she's talking to a talking crow. But still, she's she's keeping that to herself when she knows like, hey, wait, he is real and what we're doing is important. But she knows that she she can't quite share that yet because the she needs all of the facts and she really does take the secret that started it all with the whole quarry, and she takes it apart piece by piece until they can put it back together in a way that allows them to move on and to to solve that problem that was initially started by that uh, Abe secret. I don't want to give away the story, so I don't know how, how well you might be able to answer this or not, but you know, I'm really curious about, because I don't know a lot about Indigenous and reserve life necessarily, obviously just what I read, but I'm curious about if a situation were to come where there's an opportunity for kind of in the story for something to come along that would help the reserve and the people who live there economically, but then there's the whole sacred ground argument. And I'm just curious about how much is that a conflict in your community? Because I know what I read, but I always just wonder, you know, when push comes to shove, which way does it fall if that makes sense, what I'm asking. No, for sure. It makes complete sense. And it's definitely an issue I wanted to tackle with the book. The whole quarry debate 
is built around the idea of uh, short-term versus long-term gain. You're completely right of bringing out economic profits for a community, how that would be great. And it would be wonderful for the, the generation now, but we need to also think about the generations to come. What are we losing by gaining something that's material in that way? And in this case, it would be tradition and it would be this history that we've also fought so hard to, to hold on to that giving away something like the quarry to a development, which could also be, which is sacred ground in a way, would open up the community to, to more loss, traditionally, culturally. So I think it is, it's a big issue across the country, not just in like on Algonquin land. I think we see it with bigger developments, like with the Wasuetan protests of the pipelines. And I think we'll see it again and again. Unfortunately, it is a colonial problem. And until we know how to, to break that cycle, I think we'll, we'll see it, continue to see it. And so, for example, like on a reserve, is it the leadership specific, specifically that would make that decision? And does it depend on who the leadership is at that at any given time, you know, in terms of what decision decision would be made? Like, how does that play out? Well, I think we, we have sort of a similar democratic government. We do have chief and council. But the way they operate is, I think, much more uh, within the community and something like that would be brought to a full community decision. And people do really get a chance, I think, to have their voices heard, especially depending on the size of the community. I think that would also change it. But I think we are seeing more of a shift with Indigenous government towards preserving our historical lands and our those important traditions versus economic gain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, selfishly, I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, from as a, mm -hmm. <laughs> a non-Indigenous, <laughs> I think that's, like I say, I mean, I get the economic cost of it all, but I also think you sell your soul, you know, for that short economic gain and it's long-term for the greater good of humanity. It doesn't always pay off. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to say that I'm not normally a fan of sequels. I'm kind of famous uh, to all my friends. I'll read the first book. I mean, I did make it through three Harry Potter books, but I am not a fan of sequels. I don't usually stick with them. Even if I love a book to death, I don't always read the sequel. But I wanted to know, and I have two parts of this question, but is there any chance that there will be one? Because, and I wanted to quote this, Nana Bush says of Hazel, I haven't met another who could walk the boundaries between doorways as easily as me in so long and sort of that doorway between the natural world and the spirit world. And then also, I just want to throw this part in Gus is a character that fascinates me because like you said, he's kind of still in his grief and he's, he's angry and he's, he's sort of sheltering in place. And I want to know, like, I want to know more about both of them, Hazel, Gus and Nora. So is there any chance of sequel? Probably not. Um, I never thought of, of uh, this story having a sequel, but we might see them again in certain, in different ways, I think, in my storytelling. I am a fan of throwing in little Easter eggs here and there for readers. And oh. so you might see them again, maybe not a full, full novel, but maybe there'd be a short story here and there. But I, I like to think of 
the mythology that's in Crow Winter as being one that is, is overarching and I think will play a lot in my future writing. So we might we might see Nana Bush again. We might see he might talk about, you know, make a little reference here and there to, to what he's been through or what he might come across. So mm-hmm. that could be something. Well, that's good. I mean, I'll be patient and I, and I will try to <laughs> just imagine, you know, that how they kind of continue their story. But, you know, I, and I'm not going to say what it is because there was a line at the end when he and Hazel are talking and he finally lets her know why he wants to, like, like why he's gone down the path he's gone down. And I am telling you, when he does that one short little sentence, it just stop me in my tracks. And I just thought, God, I can't, it's, it was just one of those things. It's kind of like the other line about broken people build broken homes. It was another sentence that just hit me so hard when I read it. And I was like, Oh, you are just magic. Those two lines in the book. (laughs) Just amazing. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you. Are you working on anything right now? Can we expect anything uh, in the near future or distant future from you? Anything you can talk about? Yes, I'm working on something right now. Of course, with everything that's been going down, it's been a little bit difficult to get into the right headspace to create, but it comes slowly. And I think, I think we can say the near future, optimistically, you can expect something from me. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Now, mm-hmm. does year, does near mean like 2020? <laughs> I'm going to push you a little bit. Does it possibly mean 2020? <laughs> No, sadly not 2020. I might get I'm aiming to get a manuscript like first draft done by then, okay. but I don't think we'll see too much movement on <laughs> on that on that book itself, but who knows? Maybe I'll hit a huge streak and just whip through this somehow. <laughs> well, I I'm I'm a huge fan. I mean, it, the your first novel out the out of the gate, I just thought it was fabulous. I know it's gotten a lot of buzz. Uh I do know because I, like I said, whenever I anybody puts it up on a bookstagram, everybody sort of chats about it and uh, people are excited about it. Karen, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. And we definitely would love to have you back with your second novel. And uh, we hope that you'll come back and agree to chat with us again. Oh, definitely. Thank you, Yuchi uh, Miigwech, for having me. Been been wonderful. Great conversation. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to continue providing great content like this, please like, share, comment, and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye!